Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode 13 of Raise a Glass, the podcast dedicated to the pursuit and enjoyment of artisanal beverages and worldly libations. Today, I'm delighted to have Reed Spear with me, founder of Quinta Quintos Mezcal. Quinta Quintos curates small batch traditional mezcals from producers across the state of Oaxaca. They released their first six mezcal expressions in 2018, and future releases from the brand have and will change over time and include non-certified mezcals in the assortment. So Reed, you started off on a quest for Stabenten, a honey-based, anisette-flavored beverage from the heart of the Yucatan, but ended up in Oaxaca. What happened next? <laughs> well, I did spend some time looking for uh, this uh, Mayan tipple, Stabentun. And, um, Thank you for pronouncing it, was, it, it properly. <laughs> it, that's, that's a tough one. It was um, pretty difficult to find, really. Uh, and, uh, when it's made, it is made in extremely small batches, you know, sub commercial. There's, um, there's a house that produces it. Probably if you've ever had job into, and you've had it from Daristi and, uh, they, um, they're supplying basically the world with this stuff, but, um, it's a much larger operation for them. And so we didn't want that. When I say we, this was, um, my, my, my buddy. Kevin uh, Galaba, maybe you know him. Mm -hmm. He and I started on this project. He went off to do his own thing, um, but um, he he and I started looking for this stuff, and we decided it was a it was a busted play in the Yucatan, and so we found ourselves down to Oaxaca for our our other favorite beverage, mezcal, and uh, had a lot better luck there. Excellent. So. Okay. Yeah, I'd love to talk a little more offline about your your experiences in the Yucatan with any um, interesting local um, produce, which um, we'll talk about afterwards. But uh, are there some really small boutique versions of this honey anisette liqueur available down there that you can find on the? No, I, I was we were only able to find. Um, a handful of um, towns uh, where they even had it and uh, it was all you know very local uh, very very small batch and um, you know they they drank it's only like 27 ABV I think as you mentioned so it, you can drink a lot of it and they do drink a lot of it uh, with dinner after dinner um, and um, so yeah very very small production didn't find any anything other than t super tiny and super big. Okay. Well, I would love to share a wonderfully well-articulated quote from your blog with listeners that provides valuable insight into what a consumer is paying for when they pick up a bottle of mezcal. And I quote, we buy small batch mezcals from the families that make them. Why small batch? Because that's how mezcal is traditionally made. Mezcal is the oldest spirit in the Americas. It's the only spirit that can express tuar. More on that later. For over 400 years, families have distilled mezcals for their own use, for their friends, and for others in their village. It is served at every major rite of passage in a Mexican family from cradle to grave. Because most villages are not large affairs, the batches needed for a given occasion seldom exceeded a couple hundred liters. 
4,000 liter batches for local consumption? No, that didn't start until the commercialization of mezcal only recently. Small batches of expertly made mezcal from the families that have been doing this for as long as they can remember, that's what we bring you. We pay a fair price. It wasn't too long ago that you could buy a liter of mezcal for 15 pesos. Now that mezcal has been discovered, those days are gone. The agaves needed to produce mezcal take a long time to grow. The largest growing agave, the popular espadine, requires at least seven years to mature. That includes the costs of planting and tending the crop, weeding, guarding against theft, still too common despite the real risk of vigilante justice if the thief is caught, and the risk of loss by pest for seven years. Now add to that the labor of chopping off the fronds and leaves in 86 degree heat, loading 120 to 240 kilo piñas onto a truck or the back of a burrow, transporting it, cutting it down to halves or quarters, if they're large ones, cooking it, grinding it, loading the ground material into the fermentation vats, then transferring it to the still for distillation twice. Then get that process certified by the Consejo Regulador de Mezcal, have each batch tested at the CRM lab, sell it to a buyer who will then have to bottle it and then label it a process requiring certification by both Mexican and US federal and US state governments. Forget the rest of the process, getting it to the US consumer, packing, palletizing, trucking, warehousing, clearing customs on both sides of the border, paying taxes, US, American, state, then distributing to retail establishments, all of which requires two more doublings in price. That's just the mezcal sitting in a bottle in Mexico. That labor is not free. We know it, we respect the people who do this labor, and we're happy to pay for a quality product. That is why we find it heartbreaking to see a sub $40 bottle of Espadine on a US liquor store shelf. 40 to $50 will get you a good bottle in Mexico. $60 and up is what you should expect, and for all these reasons want to expect and to pay in the United States. Thank you for such a poignant summary of what goes in to a bottle of mezcal. <laughs> it's quite a lot, isn't it? It is. We, we were touching on this a couple weeks back when I talked with Assis, um, who I'm sure you've met in your, in your uh, travels as well. But uh, it's, it's impossible to conceptualize the amount of labor <laughs> and the amount of love and the amount of sweat that goes into a bottle until you go down to Oaxaca and you witness the process yourself in person. Yeah, it's really true. I mean, and, and they've been doing it for centuries. So, you know, they, they have this, these, these, these uh, Palenque workers and the Mescaleros have this air about them of just another day's work, but it's really staggering. I don't think most uh, American laborers could keep up with them. It's, um, you know, you shake these guys' hands and it's, um, it's like shaking a leather glove stuffed with rocks. And uh, yeah, incredibly hardworking. The, just the volume of labor is astounding. And so, you know, I, I see people um, down there who want to push back on price in it. And I, I, I can't do it myself. I, um, they, they set their price and I get no resistance from me on it. Um, there have been cases where I, where I, I insist on paying them more. Um, it's because I think uh, they don't have a good um, grasp on their cost accounting. 
matter of fact, um, I have um, a business school student, Alan, who's my assistant there in Oaxaca, and um, he teaches uh, some of the families I work with uh, cost accounting so that they can make sure that they are a charging a, a an adequate price and b um, planning uh, sufficiently for for future growth. That's great. Um, yeah, that's something I'd love to touch on um, at some point through the course of our conversation. Is um, the, you know your efforts with your folks sustainability down there and. Um, any insights that you can provide for the listeners would be uh, much appreciated. But before we go down that avenue, can you touch um, a bit on the differences between artisanal, ancestral, and of course, general mezcal, which is typically industrial? Yep, um, and this really goes to the labor, the labor piece of it. When, when someone uh, reacts to a bottle of uh, ancestral uh, mezcal, uh, to me, or they remarked that the, the price is high. You know, we're talking about $120, which in my mind is still low. I just pulled out my phone and opened WhatsApp and showed them a, photo, a video of um, Angel Cruz Calvo, who's now 84, swinging a mallet, macerating his, uh, his cooked agave by hand. And um, that's usually sufficient to convince them that $120 is a fair price. <laughs> it is just a staggering amount of work, right? So the differences here are that with the, um, we'll take it in reverse order, with the, the mezcal denomination, um, industrial, which is not a product that um, I, I deal in and I don't think anyone should deal in, is, um, is uh, they, they tend to use diffusers. So they, um, I'm speaking generally here. There's a there's a list of uh, qualifying uh, uh, methods and qualities for each of the categories. But generally speaking, the mezcal category, the industrial mezcal category, allows the use of diffuser technology. And for your listeners who are unaware of what a diffuser is, it is a um, apparatus or or series of machines that is um, they're really quite staggering in size. Uh, we're talking about uh, to visualize, you know, a couple train cars. Uh, you take a, a, an agave fresh from the field, macerate it into very fine particles. Then it goes through a hot water extraction and sometimes a sulfuric acid extraction method in order to extract the inulin and convert it to sugars. So it essentially reverses the process of traditional mezcal production, whereby ordinarily you would have a cook, then a maceration. This does the maceration and then the cook. And the purpose for this is to, uh, is efficiency, to squeeze every last bit of sugar out of the agave. Now, all this makes sense, but it produces a product that's often described as agavadka. So it just has just a whiff of uh, agave flavor and not anything uh, that a, a true mezcal aficionado would recognize as something that they would want to consume. Um, it also has lots of, um, lots of downstream effects. Um, they tend to produce a phenomenal amount of vinazas, um, which are, you know, we're gonna talk about that a little bit later, but, but very damaging to the environment. And on the upstream, it tends to, um, on the, 
we love, what's the policy here in your podcast on, on foul language? <laughs> Go for it. <laughs> All right. It tends to fuck up the agave market because you can put any agave uh, at any age through a diffuser and extract inulin from it. Right. So there you've got um, farmers who have planned for uh, various cycles who can sell into a diffuser market earlier uh, than they wanted. They'll say they, so if there's a, if there's a, if there's a squeeze in price that the producer um, finds unacceptable, they can go to a farmer and buy agave sooner than they would ordinarily. So uh, that allows them to put a bit of a price squeeze on the farmer, right? So that's one of the upstream effects. Um, and uh, these are enormous operations. Uh, and so they're, they're, they tend to be impersonal. Um, they tend to pay a, you know, a minimum wage. I don't like them, as you can tell. And they tend okay, to produce so move, a shitty product, of course. Yeah, I don't like to talk poorly about product, but I think it's pretty clear from my tone here what, how I feel about them. Um, you'll find, um, walking down the streets of Oaxaca, you'll find touts who are pushing you know, a golden color mezcal on you. And, and, um, I, you know, it worries me that, that some visitors only taste that stuff and then they leave without having tasted good mezcal. Okay. So enough about that. Um, into the categories of mezcals that you'd want to drink, we have ancestral and artisanal. Now the artisanal, um, uses, generally speaking, uses a copper, uh, pot distillation and alembic still. The product is typically macerated by a uh, horse-drawn tahone. Now that's the big Fred Flintstone wheel that many people have seen photos of. However, the artisanal category also allows mechanical maceration. So in this case, it would be um, usually a wood chipper. Um, and, um, you know, the the, the difference here is that the chunks of agave that are going in for fermentation are bigger. They leave more residual sugar in the bagasso, which is the, which is the post um, fermentation and post distillation agave fiber. They are both, both ancestral and um, artisanal required to use the, um, the bagasso in the distillation process. And then the distinction between ancestral and, I'm sorry, artisanal and ancestral is that the ancestral uses clay pot distillation and does not, does not permit um, mechanical maceration. So it has to be hand macerated and it has to use clay pot. And for the people who um, are wondering, you know, how great of a difference that is, the clay pot is uh, much more prone to break than copper uh, sheeting, of course, and um, they're much, much smaller. We're talking 30 to 50 liter um, pots at a time. So you have an array of uh, stills that's much larger. You know, to get the equivalent from a copper still, you would need to put in, you know, half a dozen or so clay pots. So it increases the labor increases the risk of loss. You can get through the fermentation process, be in the middle of distillation, 
have uh, you know some greenhorn who who's fired the pot too too quickly, or without a heat shield break a pot and you'll lose you know 30 liters of your tapache. Um, the the risk is high. The labor is high. The risk is high, and so that's why the prices come in the way they do. And it's also why a lot of the previously uh, ancestral um, producers have moved to artisanal. The copper is just easier to deal with. The risk is much lower. The life of the still is much greater. Um, they do wear out, of course. You can end up with copper flake in your product. Uh, you can still fire them at too high a temperature, uh, producing lots of unwanted flavors. Um, but um, they're generally easier to use. And uh, the taste of the product is different. Um, and when I say this, I'm not being judgmental one or the other. I, I, lo I love both artisanal and I love ancestral. They, they just have different flavors. So, you know, um, we could talk about that later, but, but that's your three categories. Uh, and I think the, the, the takeaway, the, the Cliff's Notes version is on the industrial side, you have diffusers. On the and, and artisanal side, you've got copper and uh, generally horse-drawn Tahona, but sometimes mechanical maceration. And then on the artist ancestral side, you have 100% um, hand made from start to finish in clay pot stills. Thank you. Um, I guess now would be a good time to address Benazza since we were just speaking about um, the distillation process. So can you touch on the damage that they do to water and ecosystems and the importance of proper disposal of them. Yeah, and there's been a lot of work done, especially I think in the Mezcal community on what to do with bananas. Some of the uh, artisanal outfits have gotten big enough that they've got bananas to contend with and they've been using them to, um, to make them in combination with their bagasa to make um, bricks for construction. Um, but the problem with them is not that they aren't useful, but that there's too much of them. So you've got a product that's very um, acid and very uh, oxygen um, hungry. So if you just dump them, they tend to run into arroyos or streams where they uh, suck the oxygen out of the stream. This is of course very bad for the life that's in the stream. And, and um, you know, these problems are, they only really arise on scale. So, you know, I don't know if you've seen a Venaza tank up behind a, a large outfit, a tequila outfit, for example, but these, these, they are the size of train cars because they can, they, they have to hold, you know, tens of thousands of gallons of these, which they then are faced with uh, disposing. So, you know, back in the days when they were getting away with uh, with murder. The big outfits were dumping them into arroyos and have been caught doing this. There's some famous cases you can search on the web, and uh, incredibly destructive. There was even an effort to try to use them to irrigate fields, but the the plants weren't responding well to them. Of course, you know, we're talking about a pH of about four. You know, where lemon juice is about two, and uh, very oxygen hungry. So, um, in small scale production. The venazas are used uh, to um, either cure plastic tombas, which then can 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 be uh, used to to hold mezcal for transport, um, 
they are then, after they're used, they're dumped onto the pile of bogaso to help in the, the, the um, decomposition of it. And it's then spread on the fields. The, 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 the composted bogaso is then spread on the fields between the agaves and it works. There are good useful minerals and um, components to the Venasas, but like I said, it's a question of volume, right? So, and then there's a couple outfits that are experimenting and I've seen this in the back of, um, I don't know if I've mentioned Carlos or not yet, but I should introduce this character. Um, you know, the, um, he and I spent years just driving around looking for small producers, but he, um, he's a great friend of mine. He handles my botling uh, as a mescalero in his own right. Very talented guy. And uh, he's growing fast. So he's been helping people experiment with, um, with these bricks and the venasis. You know, what do we do with this stuff? So they're mixing them. They're shredding the bagasso even further. They're mixing the, mixing the bricks with the Vanessa and allowing them to dry in the sun. And then they're testing the bricks to see if they can be used for construction, um, which they've gotten to a point where they can start using them for construction. So that's an exciting thing. I think um, the next process there is to have these bricks ANSI tested and certified. Uh, but, um, but those efforts are, are deeply appreciated and, and really needed as this category grows, because um, you know, if you if you want to scale your business up, you're going to end up with a bonanza's problem at some point, and it's something that you can't just get around. Can you talk about the role of wood in mezcal production and how the forests of Oaxaca are managed? Yeah, you know. Um, I, I did a number of essays on my on my website for on this on the topic of sustainability, and I was really pleasantly surprised by the situation with forestry in Oaxaca. This is you know, I've been visiting Oaxaca since 2006 um, because I have an interest in in plants, and um, it's such a biodiverse region. But I never really knew that. Oaxaca was sort of, uh, you know, a world stage level leader in sustainable forestry. This is the place where um, uh, sustainable forestry really was born. Um, the, uh, uh, what was the name of the outfit uh, that started there? Um, I'm trying to think the name of the company that started there bear with me here yeah the rainforest alliance right oh i think a lot of people have heard of them but they were they started there um, um the forest stewardship council sorry was originally founded there um but uh the center for international forestry research and rainforest alliance are, um are also um outfits that have examined and, and, and reported on how well the Oaxacan forests are being managed. Uh, and the reason why that they're being managed so well is that they are run by the communities that traditionally um, lived and I guess owned would be the word for, for it, owned these forests. You know, they call them CFEs or community forest enterprises. So these are the local communities that 
have historically uh, inhabited them and managed them and um, are in charge of uh, now harvesting and replanting. And uh, what's amazing about Oaxaca is that since the, these outfits have been watching uh, the, the management of Oaxacan forests, the number of hectares has grown. So they're not, they're not just um, replacing at a sustainable rate, they're actually outrunning the, the harvest. Now, it's not to say here that you can't have a problem from, for, from wood collection, but that there's no reason to have a problem for wood collection or wood use in Oaxaca, not yet at least. So what I'm saying is if the source of your firewood is, is down in the valley and it's local and it's cut down chaparral, you know, the, the, the brush that grows, have you you've been to Oaxaca, Robert? So um, you know what I'm talking about. It's it's this low-level scrub uh, that grows there in the desert. That's the stuff that shouldn't be cut down because it's you know collecting it. Sure, maybe um, if it's dead and down, but cutting it that's the problem. There's no reason to do that. There's enough byproduct coming out of the sustainable forestry industry that's managed by these CFEs, that there's no reason to have uh, this be an issue at all. And the larger outfits that are, you know, using firewood to fire their stills um, are getting this uh, wood from the CFE industry, CFE managed forestry industry. Uh, there's no reason why that uh, that can continue for some time. Um, I think maybe eventually this becomes a problem. It's something to monitor. I don't think it's something to worry about right now. And, you know, as a lifelong environmentalist, this is not something I would have ever imagined would be the case. I, I tend to go into these things with a bit of a cynic looking for the environmental problem, but here's a case where I'm not seeing it. That's good. That's great to hear. Um, and it doesn't surprise me with the people's connection to the land um, traditionally that uh, they have this they have this under control. Um, well, you know, they so the, the the part of the part of what was developed during the Mexican Revolution, right, was the hito system, and this was uh, Zapata's idea. So the idea was we're gonna we're gonna have this revolution. We're gonna give the land back to the people. We're gonna set up these what are called hitos. So this is these are the, the people of Mexico own the land that they live on and um, they're in charge of managing it. So if you're in a Hidatario and you want your children to have the rights that you've been granted by the Hito council, then you have to take good care of the land and you can't exploit it or run it down. Um, you have to show that you're a good steward or you're going to simply lose your rights to manage it. And so, this CFE system grew out of that Ejido system. Now, the Ejido system is no longer in place in Mexico. <clears throat> it was reversed, but there are still Ejidos there, and the philosophy behind it is still running the forestry, at least in the state of Oaxaca. And so it really is um, held up for the world um, as uh, the exemplar of how to manage a, a forest.
I absolutely love your labels. The art and the mythological tales that contain poignant symbolism and insight into the human condition. The logo and the bottle artwork by artist Cesar Ruiz Conseco features a possum or a tlacuache in Spanish. The possum on the logo is El Viajito, the little old man possum who stole mezcal from the demons as a surface to humanity. The possum ranks with the jaguar, eagle, and burro in importance in Zapotec, Taina, and Mexican mythologies. Can you share with the listeners how you discovered Cesar and the decision-making process that went in to creating these fabulous label designs? Sure, yeah, you know, as I mentioned, I had three years of hunting for the mescaleros that I wanted to work with, 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 with Carlos. And during that time, um, uh, you know, we gave the product the name Cuenta Cuentos because we, we found out that everybody we ran into was a bit of a storyteller. And that was the thing that broke the ice, you know, after a mezcal. Um, but um, we, um, I went through about, I want to say half a dozen or more artists until I found Caesar and Caesar was trained as an engineer, um, very well-educated family. Um, sister's a doctor, I believe, but he wasn't happy as an engineer. So he started doing art and, uh, he just, he and I, you know, I, I'm trying struggling to met how recall how I met him. Um, yeah, it, these people, it's always, you know, friend of a friend story here. Uh, but at any rate, we did meet, we sat down, we had the discussion and, um, we, uh, you know, he, he sort of got it immediately what I was looking for. And, uh, the art on the back of the, um, uh, the bottle is done in the style of the Oaxacan lino cut. It's a very popular style of art um, in Oaxaca where, um, you know, linoleum is cut and used on, uh, uh, um, I guess they're offset printers. I'm not quite sure what the, what, what the terminology there is, but they, these beautiful posters, uh, typically political in nature. Um, they're often used to then, uh, you know, shellac onto the sides of buildings. They're all over town. At any rate, very popular style. And, and he, um, uh, very familiar with the art. And um, uh, so we, we settled on this story and we actually went to visit a number of museums in order to research, get the version of the story that we thought was most authentic, um, get the design of the, the demons who are depicted in the, in the first panel. And, um, yeah, so we, we, we told that story and um, and Cesar is just so phenomenally talented and really lucky to have him with me still, you know, wanting to do our art uh, almost, I guess, almost six years later. It's great stuff. It, it, I've always been a fan of like the old world uh, European woodblock um, art and it, it definitely reminds me of that. Very yeah. vivid dark contrast and uh it's just very bold and stands out and yeah yeah thanks i'll be sure to let him know i mean it, people talk about it all the time it's uh it was really one of the best uh you know partnerships that uh that i've, that I've made along the way and if he sells prints uh or even original pieces certainly let me know because i i would i would totally um spend some money to support 
this fellow? Well, we're gonna. I think what we're gonna do is we're gonna we're gonna take his art to some lino cut artists. We're gonna do you know a run of probably a hundred prints of each of the panels, and uh, make them available to the to my uh, to my good customers. And then the other thing that we want to do is get him up here to do murals for people who are interested in having a wall in the bar painted. Oh yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. That'd be cool. You know, we're down for that at Finn's Manor. All right. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. You guys got some great art already. Yeah. I can tell that you, you definitely in the, in the style of uh, loving the art. Yes, sir. Um, your motto is mezcal brings people together, stories make us friends. I love this because it effectively summarizes what inspired me to launch this podcast during a time where our humanity is being compromised and the citizenry viciously divided and the power elites seizing the largest money grab in recent history from the American taxpayer. Sacred beverages like mezcal can do wonders to bring people together dissolve boundaries and even promote spiritual mental healing. Would you mind sharing one of your fondest memories of savoring a mezcal in a ceremonial manner? Well, uh, I, in a ceremonial manner, um, well, we've, you know, I've had too many great mezcals down there, but I guess <laughs> I would have to be the Dia de Muertos um, holidays, right? Um, the, this is uh, this is just enormous. It's, it's such a it's such a wonderful wonderful holiday, and mm. I think most of your listeners have probably heard of it, but don't understand maybe fully the significance of it. Um, the point behind uh, Dia de Muertos is not Halloween; it is um, to forestall the third death. So, the fir the first death that a person goes through is uh, is for himself. It's the loss of the, the body. Your body fails and you die. Second death is your funeral. This is for the people who love you and know you and for them to celebrate your life. And then the third death occurs when people stop talking about you. And so during Dia de Muertos, once a year, families go out to the Panteons, their cemeteries, and they set up ofrendas and they simply sit down for a a day and they have food and drink and talk about their deceased loved ones and that keeps them alive in their memories and it's absolutely profound and um so to be invited along um for those events to be invited to contribute to an ofrenda and share a mezcal and uh spill a little bit on the ground that's that's wonderful i agree um yeah, it, it, it's a completely different situation and aesthetic when you're when you're drinking it with someone who is from the area, whose family is from the area, and whose ancestors you're honoring at the moment. It uh, absolutely you're you're keeping them alive in their memory, and uh, you're part of that story too. It's it's if I think I think it'd be hard for anyone to not be moved by by that. Uh, tableau it's one of the most um profoundly beautiful expressions of energy um and humanity and spirits i've 
ever witnessed in my life. So yeah, I definitely agree. Thank you. Um, let's talk about your amazing mescaleros and how you discovered each one of them. Let's, um, let's start with Everardo Garcia Salvador, who is a sixth generation mescalero who makes his mescals in the artisanal style. Your website says that his tobala is among the best treatments of this agave that we know of. It's deep minerality characterized by notes of tobacco and caramel is achieved by letting the cooked agave sit for up to one month prior to distillation. A family secret that's been passed down for, well, who knows how long. Did he ever divulge to you how he discovered or arrived at this interesting technique? And can you explain to the listeners why a mezcal with tobala carries the price tag that it does? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, he, he, I don't think he knows wh where this came from. It's, um, it's just, uh, it's just how they've always done it. Right. And I, and I asked him, he can tell you why he'll, he'll say, he'll say, well, that's how you get the rich Tobola flavor. Um, but uh, who started it or when did it start? He's got no idea. He doesn't even know how many generations that uh, his family's been making mezcal. He, he says that it's uh, five as far as they can recall or that they're able to discern. Um, and um, so, yeah, he does that. And um, it takes a long time to make as a result. And uh, of course, the tobala is a slow growing plant there. This is one of the agaves that grows in the shade, typically in oak forest. And they take about 12 to 15 years to mature. And they're not big, right? These are small. They're the size of uh, basketball, you know, the pinas. Um, and so it takes quite a few of them as well. So yeah, when you, buy, when you have a tobala, you're drinking, um, you're drinking a lot of, a lot of history, a lot of the plant, a lot of um, Everardo's family's history. And, uh, you know, it's, it's exceptional stuff, in my opinion. You know, he, he, everything he does is very, what I call slotted. It's very traditional. There's no, you know how, um, as the craft beer industry grew up, they started doing, you know, uh, whimsical things in order to stand out adding pumpkin or um, pine needles or whatever they were doing in order to just do something different. I, Graham cracker uh, cookies. Yeah, yeah, all that stuff. Well, um, he, he won't have any of it, right? So his stuff is all very, very traditional if 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 you want to if you want to taste an expression that tastes very traditional like you have a, a german making a beer right everardo stuff is where you want to start because then you can know the difference from one maker to another His stuff is very slotted and where in oaxaca does he produce he's in mitla mitla okay mitla so this is the this is the home of one of the probably the second famous ruins and most famous ruins in Oaxaca. There's um, Monte Oban and then there's uh, the Mitla ruins. Beautiful, gorgeous um, site and he's right below it. Uh, I met him, um, uh, he, I think he was probably one of the last ones on a, on a day of uh, um, touring um, 
uh, Palenque is with Alvin Starkman and Mezcal Educational Tours. I got to give Alvin a shout out there because he, he was instrumental in helping launch the brand. But Everardo, just, uh, he's a real character. He's a very quiet guy, um, slow to warm up. But, um, you know, once you get to know him, terrific guy. Well, if his, if his personality is anything like the energy bestowed by his Mezcal, it's got to be a, a worthwhile fellow to get to know. <laughs> I'm, I'm sipping on it as we speak, as a matter of fact. Um, so let's, let's move on to the next question, which is Maximiliano Serafin Garcia Geronimo creates artisanal mezcal in a small hillside outside of San Dionisio Acotopec. He's very respected for his Karwinski expressions. Can you talk a little bit about the lore of Karwinski agaves and the delicious vegetal bright green aromas and flavors that they provide the participant? Well, first of all, how's that for a name? <laughs> <laughs> I love I love his name. Yeah. We just call him Max or Seraphine, but man, he's got the, he's got one of my favorite names of all time. <laughs> uh, he, he's a superhero of the earth. <laughs> yeah, a super sweet guy, just like a huggy bear. And um, he works with his son. And, um, you know, Carlos and I found him after a long day of looking for, I wanted a quiche in the line, and, uh, or Karwinski at least. And um, we just, we had strikeout after strikeout. And um, we were on our way back through San Dionisio and, um, Carla said, hey, I heard of a guy up here on this bend. Let's just swing in and see what we got here. And, you know, at the end of a day like that, you're suspicious. You know, are you trying to fool yourself into thinking that you found something? So we went back two more times just to taste it. And, you know, the third time it was like, oh, yeah, this is this is this really is great. It wasn't our exhaustion and our just our desire to find a producer. So um, but by that time, he had kind of warmed up to us. And, um, you know, his first language is Zapotec. And, um, his son Manuel speaks, he, Max speaks Spanish, Manuel speaks Spanish, Manuel speaks a little bit of English. Um, but by that time we were, uh, you know, he was on, he had um, broken out some really great um, family only expressions and we were drinking his, uh, his Karwinskis and man, um, for me, they were, they were, the Karwinskis were kind of um, tough to approach initially, but they're, they're they're my favorites now they're just so bright and so green to me they taste like a like sapwood like freshly cut um so i don't know if you ever cleared brush from a field but you, you get that smell of freshly cut um saplings you know it's just that's the that's the flavor that hits my palate you know yeah. I almost smell it now talking about it it's in his quiche is is um, do you know John McAvoy by chance? John McAvoy. He wrote, uh, he wrote Holy Smoke. Oh, I, know, I have the um, book. Yeah. Great. Yeah, sure. Just, it just sent a bunch to him and you know, we just met this summer and he just, he just described it as rocking. So he, he loves it too. And it's my daily drinker. If I don't know what else I, I want to have, uh, I, that's the bottle I reach for. Uh, I just love it. It's just fantastic. So there's a plant that grows you know, tall, long, kind of uh, like if uh, if a Joshua tree didn't have branches, you know, just uh, like a bottle brush. And um, 
it's got a whole bunch of different common names. So, you know, quiche, madre quiche, barrio, um, um, what else? Um, well, my memory's failing me now, but it's got a bunch of, uh, bunch of uh, common names to it. And, and uh, but they all, they all have that real green, fresh, bright flavor to them. And uh, they are fantastic. Maestra Mescalera Alejandrina Aragon Hernandez runs her small artisanal style palengue in a tiny valley outside of Zoquiblan. The unique microclimate of the area coupled with her mastery of the art of mezcal production means her distillations are some of the best anywhere. Can you talk about her tepestate and how the two of you met? Sure. Um, this, uh, so I met her through one of Carlos's friends. Um, and, uh, this, this, uh, fella was running for, and I think one office, um, in his area, um, near Sokatlan. Um, but, um, um, so yeah, so she, he was the nephew of Alejandrina. And so again, word of mouth here. Um, really far out, you know, it's a three hour drive from the city to get to her. And, um, the, uh, what were you asking me about? Oh, her tap. Her style is, her style is unique. She, she has, um, stainless steel Montera on a copper, um, Alambique. And, uh, since the taps aren't growing uh, very close. She has to travel a long distance to get them. And uh, that means that her stills are down a lot of time between production runs. And I think that, I, you know, I don't know, but I suspect that's part of the flavor. She's got um, water sitting in them a lot of the time between runs. And, um, and this, I think, sustains the life of uh, whatever yeast she's got growing in these tinas something i'm not quite sure what it is but there's nothing that tastes like it uh you've had it it's you know you pop open a bottle of her tap and uh someone from across the room comments on it i hear it alternately described as either um banana bubble gums or blue cheese you know it's it's one of these uh one of these three flavors that someone always says and um it's so it's so potent on the palate and in the nose that for me, two ounces is, is about all I can handle. I, I, um, I'd rather have a one ounce. It's just, it's, um, it's that, it's that intense. Does she have an intense personality? She is, as Alan once said, driving away a woman of few words. <laughs> 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 so she just shows up at the Palenque with her, with her high heels, you know, you got to imagine a woman dressed in a, in a, in a dress and high heels, just pointing at things and having her entire crew jump to attention. She's a, she's a force. She looks amazing. I love the photo of her. She looks like a, a very, she could, she could possibly be an abuela. She looks fit, like she's pressing like yeah. 60-ish at least. Yeah. Yeah. 
yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I think her kids have kids. Um, they're, they're seldom around there, but, um, she and her husband, um, uh, do the majority of the work. Um, and they've got a few locals who, who chip in, but, um, you know, it's, um, it's a really cool place. These, um, she's down there. The, the, the environment around her is kind of like, I don't know, I guess I'd drive, describe it as kind of, um, tropical you know you can see the landscape change as you approach her place it goes from majority cactus to to you know increased uh number of fruit trees and palms plantains and uh yeah and you can you can she grows corn nearby you can taste you can taste the um the tropical notes i think in the in the product too you know i um mangoes and um plantain definitely evocative mm, mm. have you had any uh mango distillate down there ran through a uh mescalero's copper pot still i have it's good stuff it sounds like you've had it fucking ethereal yeah. man i love that stuff yeah. <laughs> and i've been fortunate yeah. to have it from a couple folks down there and and they're all amazing um I wish that there was more of that available because that is that's one of those things that I thoroughly enjoy brown bagging um, and tasting people on blind and just getting their just witnessing their reaction is always a great joy. <laughs> right, right, yeah, yeah. No, that's great stuff too. It, it, I wonder, you know, the entrepreneur me wonders, you know, what kind of market there would be for that. Um, but it's a really nice treat to have while you're there. It is. It is. Um, well, I can tell you I would support it, but I don't know how many other people would. Um, yeah. I, I think any mezcal, any any bar that covets mezcal would obviously uh, carry something like that. But how much of it they could push um, to the general consumer base is, is certainly questionable. I, I would assume all mezcal fiends would be into it. Um, It'd be fun to just have a bottle behind the bar to do, you know, like, uh, you know, a complimentary sip or something, you know, for the mezcal drinkers. Absolutely. Big kick out of it. Or at Finn's and all uh, on the altar to Urza Lee. So she has something uh, quite rare to enjoy from time to time and something my bartenders could enjoy together. So, well, we should, we should look into that. I don't think it would be too hard to get some of them up, some of it up. That would be amazing, man. Please let me know, and would love to check right. out that later. All right, all right. The birth of a the birth of a new category here. <laughs> okay, moving on to Angel Cruz Robles, who um, has a tiny palenque hidden in the forest high in the Sierra Sur Mountains outside of Sola de Vega, draws its water from a sacred spring. Angel is meticulous in his work, using a wooden mallet to crush his cooked agaves by hand. What types of agave does Angel tend to enjoy working with? Well, he and his, um, he and his grandfather, Angel Cruz, Angel Cruz Calvo, they have got enough land that they are able to grow a lot of their own agave, which is, uh, which is great. Uh, it's not always the case. Um, they do lots of Americanas. They do a tobola, simaniana. You know, most tobolas are potatorum, but they grow a simaniana. And um, 
so from the Americanas, you've got Coyote, Arqueño, um, and uh, what else? Did you say Coyote? Coyote. Yeah. Araqueño. Yeah, yeah. Araqueño. There's one more that they do. Uh, the my memory is failing me here. Um, but at any rate, uh, they they do the Tobla Simaniana too. Um, this th th these guys are fantastic. They they are probably two of the most industrious people I've ever met in my life. I know as I as you mentioned, they're I may have mentioned they're they're playing kids real close to one another, but they're very different from one another. And um, uh, they both, but they both use clay. They help one another out. Um, how Robles the Younger is very much interested in the science. Uh, and so he spends a lot of time testing his specific gravity and doing tests for various alcohols. And um, this is the cool thing that he's discovered. Um, they don't have to, and they do not cut their puntas. Okay. Only one I know of. So um, not only are they the only people I know who do Tobla Simaniana, the only people I know who don't cut puntas. And is it a solo distillation? It, no, it's two. It's two okay. distillations, but uh, they, only cut, uh, they only cut the colas. Wow. That's cool. Yeah, pretty pretty interesting yeah and um and you've tasted the stuff so deeply deeply mineral dry as a bone you know everything out of him oh he does an espadine for me as well um but um yeah just amazing gorgeous stuff and the, the cool another cool thing that they do is they use that sacred water so they've got they've got people who make pilgrimages to their little town and uh, there's a little cottage industry of um townsfolk who sell containers for people to take the water home. So do you know anything about the roots of that, um, of that re the region and, and why the water source is uh, deemed sacred by the local community? Or I, I don't know the, the origin story for it. Um, I intend to ask him. Um, seems like we've always got other stuff to talk about, but uh, you know, th there's a lot of syncretic religion in Oaxaca meaning uh, a blend of Catholicism and um, Aboriginal religion, right? So um, you, see, you, you see this a lot, you see some unusual practices you run into, and they, they, they get along great, like the, the, the Catholic uh, belief and the you know, um, native belief, they, they, they fit together well, or at least without friction for them. And um, so, yeah, you have a lot of these syncretic religions. You know, I, I remember being at, uh, at, the, at the Mitla um, Iglesia watching um, a Corandero um, take water into his mouth and, you know, spit it out onto his, um, his flock in order to conduct some ritual or another. And, you know, in those instances, I don't want to interrupt or ask what's going on, but I certainly am curious. I've seen that in, in yeah. voodoo ceremonies um, with rum being uh, from the from the mambo to the the people sprayed involved. sprayed from the mouth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. It's not to be something. Um, you know, it might have. Been, 
it was coming out of a water bottle, might have been mezcal. I wouldn't be surprised if it were. Um, went to um, Angel's wedding um, last, the May before last. And, um, you know, again, there's um, there are elements of uh, previous uh, religious belief or, or I guess persistent religious belief that is non-Catholic in the ceremony. So pretty pretty uh fascinating to be able to have a front row seat to that absolutely yeah the 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 culture and the religion and the magic and the mysticism runs very deep in that part of the world Um, and any any remnants of it that one can witness manifest in today's contemporary culture is i consider a a blessing for sure Um, Mm -hmm. yeah Um, So moving on to Tomas Jaime Gonzalez Ramirez, who makes mezcals in both artisanal and ancestral styles at his palenque outside of Francisco de Sola. His ancestral espadín is an easy choice for a table mezcal, as you say, one to serve with nearly everything. And it mixes well with bitters as well as citrus juices, so great for a wide array of different cocktail applications. But speaking of ancestral, can you talk a little bit about what aromas, flavors, and mouthfeels one encounters from mezcals that are distilled in clay pots? Absolutely. Well, you know, you start with a new clay pot, and uh, the flavor is much different from uh, an older clay pot, and the clay really comes through. So the listeners who haven't tasted them Think of uh, the aroma of freshly poured concrete, wet cement, right? When you walk past a sidewalk or, or a driveway that's been poured. Um, so it's got that clay mineral uh, center of the tongue um, feel and, and flavor to it. Um, I think it's more of an aroma than, uh, than a flavor. And I think for some people, when the pots are newer, the 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 pot can overwhelm the agave um, with um, yeah. So depending on the depending on the agave they're using, right? That 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 can sometimes be the case. You know, you get three or four distillations into it, um, and those um, those pots tend to start to mellow out, but you still get that dryness, that minerality to them. And um, that can work really nicely with the older agaves, especially the Americana, in my opinion, because they're already picking up the, the minerality, the terroir of the, of, the, of the ground they're grown in. I also get personally like a, a very creamy, viscous um, mouthfeel in comparison to something. Yeah, like, um, yeah absolutely. I, yeah, I think that comes along with that sort of, clay um, filtration you know it's really it really is being sort of filtered through it Um, and uh, you know I think that the porosity of the clay you know eats a lot of the agave it allows the flavor of the of the heat source to come up through especially initially again Um, and so it takes on the clay really takes on the character of the agaves that it's exposed to. So if um, a mescalero is going to stick with one agave 
then that flavor is going to deepen. But if they're going to swap them out and use a different, the same pot for a different variety of agaves, then you're going to have a mellowing effect too. You know, so much of technique goes into what makes mezcal taste the way it does. It's often hard to tease out the differences and you simply can't. Um, you know, the three words I hate most when people describe mezcal um, are um, um, uh, smoky, uh, interesting, and um, uh, what's the other one? But I, I, I prohibit the use of these words when my friends are tasting. Like, no, you can't, you can't describe. I won't let you describe them this way. First of all, if it's if it's overly smoky, it's um, that's a production error. That means that uh, the agaves went into the oven or the orno at too high a temperature and that they've uh, been scorched. That mean, that indicates that someone was in a hurry. Um, or a little bit Solero is potentially trying to hide faults in the mezcal perhaps. Yeah, um, or, the, or the agave, right? Not all agave comes out of the field in good shape. They've got uh, a weevil there that can attack and take down a field really quickly. Mm. And so, there's there's perhaps an attempt there to cover up the uh, the sins in the Magallero. but um, oh, smooth is the third word. Smoky, smooth, and interesting. These are my cop out words, right? Yeah, yeah. Don't tell me it's don't tell me it's smoky because I know these aren't. I don't. I honestly don't taste smokiness when I taste agave uh, mezcal's anymore, Robert. I just I just I taste the flavor of the agave. If I'm tasting smoke, I got to put the thing down and get another pour. Amen. Smooth, smooth doesn't describe anything to me. Okay. I'm sure you get this a lot with uh, with your whiskey tasters. I don't want to hear it. It's a cop out. Um, it's a liquid, so yeah, it's smooth. Uh, you mean it's not astringent? Let's call it that. If you're not, if it's not uh, burning your throat, it's not hot. That means that the 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 alcohol is well blended with the the uh, the rest of the uh, distillate. So let's talk about that. And interesting is the worst cop out of all, right? I, uh, I just, I, that says I don't want to think about it. So yeah, so yeah. That'll that'll you you say interesting. You're buying the round, right? And you're gonna also start to think about it and tell us what you really meant to say when you said interesting. <laughs> so yeah, that's the that's the game I play with my friends when we taste mezcal. And I would agree that in in the whiskey industry, smooth is definitely one of those words that we shudder at as well. The same, yeah. the same when somebody comes up to your table and says, um, what's the best? Which one's the best? What the yeah. fuck does that mean? The best. Right. Um, you know, right. Um, for, for whom? For when? For, I don't know anything about what you like. Exactly. <clears throat> yeah. Time, so, um, which one is the oldest? Because somehow if it's been aged longer, then it's automatically better than anything else that might be on the table, which is another ludicrous notion that right you don't want to waste time giving weight to right um, but yeah it's similar similar um themes in different industries um let's go to carlos mendez uh is it blas or bias blas yeah blas 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 so he's the descendant of two generations of mezcal families and uh you said he's a talented mescalero in his own right he has his own brand, his own agave fields. 
He contract manufacturers for several other brands, um, but has worked very closely with you through the duration of this project. And uh, you guys have something very exciting um, to announce a joint project where you're bringing a lower priced clay espadine to the market. Um, you want to talk about that a little bit? Sure. Well, I mean, you know, I met Carlos. I, I was, um, I, you know, I started looking for contacts and it took me three years really to, to get to meet everybody I needed to know and meet all the families I needed to know. But really early in the process, I, I, uh, uh, Pro, um, Pro Mexico Oaxaca was inviting me down to um, Mexico to taste um, mezcals that were ready for the market, basically products that had been labeled and were waiting for an importer. And um, what I'm doing is not, it doesn't really fit the standard model that they uh, were used to promoting. So I knew Thalia and Lisbeth who were uh, running ProMexico, which has since been uh, dismantled, unfortunately, by um, the, the current president, AMLO. But um, he, um, they, um, they, by the third visit, they said, you know, why aren't, why aren't you, why don't you have a contract yet? Why aren't you bringing Mezcal in? And I said, well, look, um, what I want to do is I want to find people who don't have the money to come to this event, who don't have a label, who don't even understand how, marketing or, or how to get this product to, to market. I want traditional makers. And Elizabeth, um, who's very tight with Carlos, uh, said, I need you, I want you to meet Carlos. Um, uh, at the time, unbeknownst to me really for, uh, that whole visit until I went down the second third time since after that uh, he had recently lost his father and um, I was fresh out of a relationship so we both had a similar um, you know mindset and uh, we really just really hit it off as friends and uh, we spent three years driving around together and uh, on one of the trips um, he was driving me back to the airport and he said hey you know we got to crack this um, this well market and uh, you know, he, all he's been doing for me is bottling. And um, at this point, I'd really gotten to know him and I really wanted to do something with him. So we were talking about how we were going to crack this uh, bar market. And I said, well, you know, the, the, the well market is the way it is, meaning low ABV and inexpensive because, you know, there's this dollar an ounce price point that seems to be magic for the people uh, who are running these, uh, running the bars. They want to know that they've got, um, their costs where they need to be in order to make a, a profit on a mixed drink. So we got to, I said, that's our, that's our approach. We got to figure out a way to bring a product in that's low cost, but also worth drinking on its own. You know, he and I weren't going to drink anything 38 to 42. Now I, I should, I should soften that a bit. I've had really great mezcals at 42, 43 ABV. Um, and uh, a few of them I can think of right off the top of my head. I just love but, um, you know, anything, typically anything below that, I, I'm just not interested in They're too watery. They don't have the punch I like in my mouth. And I, in my opinion, they don't have the punch to, to uh, you know, be tasted through a, a good cocktail. And so we, you know, we, we were running, there's just this gorgeous cocktail scene in Oaxaca and um, incredible, incredible drinks that um, couldn't be replicated here in the States because the, you know, you're, you're, you got $20 pours, right. For, for, for a, a really, really top-notch mezcal, anywhere from 
you know, seven to 20 bucks, right? So, so that's our way in. We got we to gotta compete on features. And uh, so we were just chatting and I said, hey, you know, you've got, you've got Ordinario coming off all the time for your brand, for these other brands. What if we, um, what if we finish that in clay? Think about it, you know? And so I'm sitting there on the air, airplane and it's getting ready to take off. And I, I, I look down at my phone, there's messages on WhatsApp and they're pictures of clay pots. And Carlos is sending me these photos of clay pots. He's like, I just bought them. I put my order in. Uh, we'll have them in uh, three or four months. And I said, that's great. Who are we going to get to install them? He's like, well, we'll go out to Sola. We'll get Tomas Jaime to, to give us one of his guys. And so we got his nephew, um, Ricardo Ruiz, to come out and install them and, and, and train Carlos's staff. And so here we are. We've got this El Barro product, which means the clay. Comes in at 46 ABV. Um, it's, um, we're not making any money on it. We just want to give uh, bar owners the option to have a really top-notch house mezcal, which is really kind of a tradition in Oaxaca, you know, a house mezcal that you can have beside a beer or a glass of wine, or you can mix. It tastes great, great on its own, uh, but it's got the punch to carry uh, uh, flavor through a cocktail too. So here we are. I can't wait to try it. I really can't. Is it is it in stock right now with uh, your local distributor house? It's in stock. Yeah, it's right. there, and they're selling the heck out of it, and it's it's worked out really well. Um, it's a way to introduce people to the Quinta Quintos line, and uh, and you know, throw some friendly elbows at the other bar, uh, mezcal folks. <laughs> no, no hard no hard feelings. I. I Think of, I liken it to the mosh pit. You know, you're old enough to know what I'm talking about. <laughs> oh yes. All right. What was the uh, what was the first time you tasted mezcal, and what was your first impression? Well, the first time I had mezcal, I was 17 and drinking it, uh, you know, illegally, uh, and it was uh, probably Monte Alban or Dos Cusanos, some something like that right um but uh the first time i had a great mezcal was in uh, oaxaca in 2006 and it was really accidental i was there um i had sold um uh a dietary supplements company in 2004 and was traveling around the world and mexico was on my list because of oaxaca and my interest in plants and um, so it just popped into this little literal hole in the wall at the time. Um, it really is just one way in and one way out. This is um, La Mescalerita, just up the Alcala from uh, Santo Domingo. It's become yeah. much bigger now, and they, they're doing pulque, and they've got a rooftop uh, restaurant, and um, still one of my favorite um, mescalerias there. But um, I had, uh, you know, a couple expressions there and bought a bottle and and uh, went down to, um, from Oaxaca to, um, um, to Chiapas to, um, what's the name of the little town down there where everybody visits? Beautiful town in Chiapas. Anyway, it sat up all night, finished the whole bottle with a, with then, with a then girlfriend and uh, woke up feeling, and we watched the sun come up, you know? 
didn't even really wake up. Just had maybe an hour and a half. Woke up feeling none the worse for wear, really. And I just thought, wow, what, what is this about? What's going on here? <laughs> and uh, that's what really got my interest and, and really focused me on the category. Yeah, it is amazing how, um, I mean, I'm sure one could drink enough to get a brutal hangover. However, um, I've consumed my fair share of it um, down there as well as up here. And, and I never have gotten a, a wretched next morning experience. Um, the only exception to this for me personally is if I add beer to the mix. It, it will affect yeah but yeah 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 you don't want to mix but um, uh, I, for me my experience is that you you'll know you've you've been drinking but you don't have a headache yeah so yeah. you can have right right so you don't get the, the splitting headache doesn't seem to come with it yeah. uh, you know I was tired I knew I'd been drinking and I wanted a nap but I, I didn't have a just a you know cross-eyed my you know head splitting headache um but uh yeah that was the first time i you know my first real experience with it and so uh when it came time to uh to jump into this i went right back to oaxaca and um and um you know by that point i had been drinking it for on and off for six years and uh really fell in love with the category what is the first thing that you do when you arrive in Oaxaca once you've checked into your hotel? Uh, so often it's not check into the hotel. Nice. <laughs> it's, it's a, yeah, it's, it's meet a friend for a drink, but um, I really like uh, the, the, the bar at Casa Oaxaca. So this is my tip to anybody who wants to get a good meal for a low price at a top, top, top notch kitchen and not have to have a reservation is just go to the bar at Casa Oaxaca and they'll have a bar menu up three items, 75 pesos. They've got a good list of mezcals. They've got a good list of Mexican wines and uh, it's a beautiful environment. They've got a band playing in the courtyard and uh, yeah, I, I fill my stomach and then I go out and meet some friends, usually at uh, La Mesclarita. Cool. What are three of your favorite? You've already mentioned a couple. Um, so I guess maybe an additional mescaleria or two that you'd recommend for listeners if they get down there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, in situ is an absolute must. I can't imagine someone coming on to your podcast and not recommending it. This is uh, Ulysses uh, uh, Torrentera uh, and um, his partner, uh, Deborah's uh, establishment. And they close early, so you want to get there soon. But, um, but they have just an unbelievable selection, a wide, wide variety, extremely well curated and uh, really um, – he really knows his shit. So you want to definitely go there and have a flight or two. Can you repeat? They're going to close. In situ? In situ. Okay. In, in situ. Mm -hmm. um, probably the epicenter of Mezcal in the world. Just an absolute must. Um, 
there's um i i also really like um i like a place where i can get a bite to eat too so um for me uh sabina sabe is great mm. i have one of their tiki um, but zapotec tiki yeah, right. oh yeah yeah <laughs> they're a terrific kitchen open late uh nice uh, selection of mezcals uh el destilado uh jason who owns cinco sentidos another beautiful line of mezcals and our destilados i guess he's not certifying um in a good kitchen um i've already mentioned casa oaxaca la mezclarita um let me see um up the up the uh road from from in situ mescalogia mm -hmm. uh is a good place they're open late yeah there's it's I'll tell you what, there's, um, it's probably easier to name the bad ones, which I'm not going to do, but there's a lot of good places to grab a, to grab a great mezcal and a good bite to eat. And, uh, so if you're a mezcal lover, man, you're, you're a pig and shit in Oaxaca. What's your favorite mole in Oaxaca city? I like mole amarillo and I like it down at, um, the, uh, the cocinas at, uh, 20 de Noviembre. There's just, um, you know where you know where the uh, Paseo de Carnes is? Oh yeah, in the market. So you go through. Yeah. So you go through the Paseo de Carnes. Yep. And there's all those little little kitchens run by mamacitas and abuelas. Uh, there's one I really like there, and uh, they just do this really wonderful amarillo um, de pollo, and um, I eat that a lot. Yeah, I just I love it. Um, yeah, that's really fantastic stuff. I mean, you know, they say it's the land of seven moles, but I've never had two that are like <laughs> no. 7,000, right? Yeah. And and for those of you not familiar with mole, it's a, it's a very, very complex, ancient um, stew, if you will. Um, it's like a, a lot of them start off as a, as a base, and it's usually a combination of peppers and oftentimes chocolate and that's of course with the dark mole but there's all different types there's green there's yellow um there's the classic mole oh, the um, almendra red mole the almonds in it yeah oh yeah oh, that's good god it's amazing stuff and uh some of this stuff takes days to prepare um and and the taste like the best way i can describe it is if you like a beautiful complex indian curry um this is this is on that level only i think deeper and more complex um yeah yeah it's 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 really something uh and, and like you say they take days to make them and everybody's they're all they're all you know casero right they're all homemade and everyone's got their recipe and man they are really something yeah for sure. Um, what about um, if you were not involved in Mescal, what do you think you might be doing at this moment? Or not at this specific uh, moment, in general? Yeah, I, I can tell you because I've been working my way out of the cannabis industry since 2008. And uh, I'm really happy to be in, in, uh, in where I am now doing this. I just, I just like it so much, so much better. And I don't like the, the gold, 
the gold rush mentality and the, the paranoia that seems to be the hallmarks of um, the cannabis industry. So I'm really happy to be here. You know, this industry that you're in, Robert, and uh, that I'm in too, it's just people support one another. They're excited by what you're doing. They don't feel threatened by it. They, they, you know, you know, I don't have any competitors. You know, I, there's just other great mezcals. You know, from, you know, from, from, it doesn't matter what range you're talking about, too. You know, and this is um, a really wonderful thing about the mezcal community. Very, very supportive. You know, I'm friends with other brand owners. I like them. I love them. I know. I like what they're doing. They don't have. A competing product they've got a different product they've got they've got other things that that are happening that they're doing that that are family secrets and traditions i mean you've had vago elote god it's incredible beautiful you know, there's nothing like it on on the else they're out there on the shelf and and no reason why anybody would try to 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 go at that right it's just there's too many other great things in the mezcal world to to be promoting that, that is a um, particular value set that I really do admire in, in the Mescal world is uh, the mutual respect uh, amongst suppliers and producers and, and Mescaleros. It's, it's a lot of industries pretend like it's all love and, and you know, camaraderie and brotherhood and family, but they're, they're stabbing each other in the back um, from time to time. Um, I have not seen that in the mezcal world. Um, I'm sure it exists on some level somewhere, but not amongst the people dealing with the the small batch stuff. I think everyone's in it for the right reasons, which is a, a genuine respect and appreciation for the craft um, and the history and the heritage and the mysticism that is mezcal. And when you have people that are enamored by topics of that type of um, uh, relevance i think it filters out um you know low low level low vibrational frequency cretins that are only in things for um immediate short-term gain you know yeah yeah i see that i think that those people get filtered out pretty quickly um the mescaleros aren't going to work with them um but i'll tell you the other thing is you know with mescal you don't you don't get a customer you get a turn at a customer because the mezcal file wants to taste different expressions, right? So part of what's great about it is I've never had that. I want to try that. It's not, this is the one, this is my drink and the one that I will always drink now and forever. Right. It's not yeah. Like, you know, someone's a Jack Daniels guy and that's it. That's the only thing they ever want to drink. Right. Or this is my vodka. None of that exists with mezcal. People want to try the different expressions. So, Hey, come on. You know what? You know, try the rum baseline. Fantastic oh, stuff. Good My God, God, amazing, right? Yeah. Go, you know, I don't, I don't have those expressions. If I did, they wouldn't be made by the same person. So, you know, or agaves, I mean. So, you know, everybody's expressions differently. Go try that stuff. It's incredible. Agreed. Um, well, let's touch on where. Oh, I, I have another thing I want to ask before we go to where our listeners can find Quinta Quintos for purchase. Just curious what your favorite vessel is to use when drinking mezcal or if it really matters to you at all. No, I like a, I like a, I like a Copita. Um, the, the Veladora is a second choice. 
Um, I think I like the um, Hikara least of all. It's, they're just too greedy with the Mezcal, and they tend to crack quickly. So they're, they're nice out at the, you know, out the Palenques. That's often what's being used or passed around to taste. But they're really the large Hikaras, about the size of a, you know, a grapefruit, maybe a little bit larger. They contain a large volume of, um, of mezcal. So um, that's good to taste from, you know, you're holding it with two hands and uh, you get a good sensory experience with it when you're tasting. But after I've been through the tasting process and made my selections, I know what I've purchased. Um, it's been curated for me. I'd rather have it in a copita, um, you know, maybe two, three inches in width. And uh, that gets you all you need at a bar. Um, the Veladoras, uh, nice just because uh, they're inexpensive. They're what everybody uses. They've got a good traditional background to them. But um, yeah, they, I, you know, after I've after I've bought a bottle, I don't I don't want to waste it on a hikara. They're just they're just too porous. <laughs> Thank you. So, how about um, Quinta Quintos for people who want to experience this fantastic line of mezcal? Um, they're available in Colorado, uh, pretty widespread. I probably could use an update on my website, which is Re Real Mezcal, R E A L Mezcal, M E Z C A L dot com. Uh, I think there's a list of uh, Outlets there, like I say, probably needs an outlet uh, distributed by Vin Market Selections here. In the rest of the country, I have um, um, a, a contract with uh, Craft Distillers, who's my marketing arm, and they're promoting it. Uh, we're about to go into 10 new states. Um, off the top of my head, we've got Oklahoma, Arkansas, Texas, uh, Florida, Missouri, uh, Illinois, New York, Connecticut, um, New Jersey. I think there's some talks going, going on with PA. I had to outsource this to some people who know what they're doing because I don't. Um, and, uh, and Kraft has been really great at that. So that's, um, I don't know if you know Chris Stevens or not. I don't believe so. Yeah, so he's the guy in, in uh, he's the guy uh, at Kraft who's doing all the placements for me and uh, very, very good at his job. Well, congrats. I'm glad to see you're getting some reach outside of Colorado. And uh... thanks. It was uh, scary at the beginning of the pandemic here. I thought it was, I thought it was going to be another year lost, but it uh, looks like we'll get about 10 states introduced. So fantastic. And, um, I'll spread the word to my Florida peeps because I've, I've got a lot of friends who are heavily into Mezcal in the Tampa St. Pete region. So, uh, eight yeah, it's also going to, I think, I'm sorry to interrupt. I'm sorry to mean to interrupt you, Robert. All good. Go on. It's also going to be, um, available online too very soon. So, Oh, even better. Excellent. Yep. Yep. I see that, that trend occurring, which is, um, which is great. Um, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Are those some loosening of laws or is it just uh, a pivot that people are doing to, there's gotta be some kind of loosening of- Pandemic pivot. Yeah. As far you know, as- One thing that I've, one thing I hope sticks after this, uh, you know, this uh, this cocktails to go thing. Yeah. Right? 
uh, I, that'd be great for folks like you. I, I, you know, no cities burned down as a result. I, I think there's no reason why we can't keep it. I hope it sticks. It's, it would be juvenile to think that we have to suddenly, you know, go back to some more, um, Calvinist, uh, prohibition mentality. Yeah. Thank you for saying Calvinist too. That's the, that is the term. That's what I always say. Where's prohibition come from? Yeah. No. It's, it's That's Jonathan Edwards. An asinine, um, very dark, unnatural uh, perspective of, of the world. Um, so let's, let's, uh, we're, we're on coming on two hours here. So thank you very much for your time. I would love to um, give you the opportunity to add any final thoughts on Mescal and its relevance to the world, um, to humanity, the realm of the spirit, to culture, and to, uh, um, I don't know, the, uh, the essence of being a human, what, what Mescal does um, for us little hairless primates in our day-to-day -day existence. Yeah. Yeah, right. Well, it, tie, it ties, us, ties us to tradition. And this is something with our accelerating society we have less and less of. And I think that is really the appeal of it. You know, here's something that's been around for at least 400 years. And once you're aware of that, and once you know what it is that you're buying when you buy a bottle of Mezcal, that makes all the difference. So, you know, I would simply say, um, learn about Mezcal, taste some. It's a taste worth acquiring and um, share it with friends. And then you're part of a very, very long line of, uh, of people who have been doing this for centuries. And uh, you know, it's, it's face down um, invasion, it's face down prohibition. It has survived all of that. And now here it is, here's your chance to participate and America's oldest spirit, one of the great spirits of the world. And uh, I'll just leave it there. Hmm. Very well said, sir. Ladies and gentlemen, Quinta Quintos Mescal and Reed Spear, thank you. Robert, thanks so much. And thanks so much for supporting us. We really appreciate it. It is our pleasure.